And I ask you to bear with me this morning as I uh, maybe try something a little bit different. I want to ask you also to agree with me as we get started this morning that uh, you and I both have a job to do right now. We're both called to something. We both have something to do. My thing now is to attempt to unpack the scriptures, the word of God. Your thing is to listen, to absorb, to receive, to discern, and to respond. And not primarily to my words, but to the word of God as we hear it and as it is spoken. Are you with me on that? So I'm asking you to bear with me, stay with me for a little bit, uh, and agree with me that we have uh, both have a role. Uh, you have a role, I have a role, my role may be more obvious, but we uh, all have a role here this morning and over the next few minutes uh, to listen, all of us, attentively to God's word and to respond and to discern after receiving, listening, hearing. I was thinking earlier this week about what it means to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus, what that might look like, about what might characterize a fully devoted follower of Jesus, someone who is mature in Christ, someone who is spiritually mature or well along the road with Jesus or in God's spirit, uh, which is our aim. Our stated values as a congregation are following the Lord Jesus. We strive to love all people unconditionally, serve our neighbors generously, advance God's purposes globally, pour into the next generation intentionally, and cultivate spiritual growth continuously. Those are our values, our mission statement has been for a long time and continues to be to honor God by helping people become fully devoted followers of Jesus. To honor God by helping people become fully devoted followers of Jesus. And most of you know these things. And so what does a fully devoted follower or student or apprentice of Jesus look like? What does someone who is fully formed in Christ look like? What is such a person like? That's what I was ruminating on earlier this week, just sort of randomly on my own for a bit. And it would be really fun right now for us to, and we could do this, but we're not going to, just turn to the people around us and talk about thoughts and ideas about how to answer that question, what that person looks like. And I think we'd come up with some really good things and probably be right on on a lot of things. We're gonna move on to something a little bit different though, uh, but I think it may help us in that inquiry if you are interested in that because it has helped me some this week in my inquiry unexpectedly into this question, what does a fully devoted follower of Jesus look like? We're continuing this morning with our study of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in chapters five, six, and seven, that block or collection of Jesus maybe best known teaching uh, in Matthew's gospel. The passage we get to this morning, uh, many of us are familiar with it, we've heard it, though probably not as many of us have been immersed in it ourselves or realized its poignancy or importance for life in God's kingdom, which you remember was how Jesus sort of introduced his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel, saying the kingdom of God is near, it's at hand, it's available, it's accessible to all of you here and now, it's available, it's not just that out there, future, up there thing, but it's here and it's available, it's how Jesus began his public ministry, how he introduces his Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says, because this kingdom or God's reign, the reality of his dominion and his way is among us and available to us, he says, therefore, think differently. You're going to have to 
think differently. Think again. Rethink a lot of the things that in the past you've thought or known. And probably also change your mind or at least be open to such. Reconsider. The Bible's word for all of that is repent. And hopefully that's repenting is the sort of disposition of mind and heart and readiness that we have this morning as we open God's word together. To that end, let's pray. Help us, God, to hear, not necessarily my words, but your word. Help us to see in maybe ways that we haven't seen before. Give us uh, minds and hearts that are malleable in your hands and in the hands of your spirit. Change us, shape us, grow us, help us to rethink and to change and be transformed by the renewing of our minds, by your word, by your truth, by your presence, by your power, by you. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words stray or deviate in any way from your word, may they be quickly and forever forgotten. In the name and the character of Jesus, we pray. Amen. And now let's hear the words of Jesus from the Gospel of Matthew, beginning at chapter 7, verse 1. Listen closely. This is God's word. Jesus said, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. The word hypocrite comes from the theater in Greek. You actor. You fake. You pretender. You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's or sister's eye. Again, because it's short. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. In that same way. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother or sister, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's or sister's eye. Do not judge, Jesus said. And yet, who cannot judge among us? We human beings seem to judge automatically, involuntarily. That's what we do. In the words of Henry Nouwen, not a day goes by without somebody doing or saying something that evokes in us the need to form an opinion about him or her. And so that's what we do, even without thinking about it, without even trying, we judge other people. And yet Jesus says, don't. And what could be clearer about don't? Do not. But do not do, Jesus, what we do by nature, don't we don't do what we cannot help but do? Yes and no. The Greek word krino or kriano 
translated in the English in verses one and two as judge or to judge, has a lot of nuances and this a variety or basket of meanings. I'm gonna lay them out. First, it can mean to decide, to distinguish, to separate, to pick out, to select, or to choose, to weigh, or to measure, or to evaluate. It can also mean to approve, or to esteem, or to prefer one thing over another, including determining the correctness, or the rightness, or wrongness of something. In other words, to discern. Or it can mean to try, as in a trial. To judge, to pass judgment on. To decree punishment, to avenge, yes. To condemn in a legal sense or a court setting, or even to D-A-M-N, yes. And it seems to be the last of these specifically which Jesus forbids. How do we know? Because Jesus suggests in verse five that removing the splinter from others' eyes, in other words, the first two definitions of crino are valid and even good and important. He does the same thing a few verses later in verse 15 of chapter seven. Yes, that's a splinter. Yes, it's in someone's eye. Yes, it will do them harm. Yes, it's uncomfortable. Yes, it should be removed. The challenge for many people, however, including many Christians, is staying in the realm of those first two definitions and not drifting into the third, which we as Christians in particular, but all people, are inclined to do and often do. Some people misunderstand Christianity or being in Christ or the way of Jesus to be all about following rules and being good and doing the right thing, all of which on its own is legalism and empty religion and self-righteousness. Of course, obeying Jesus, imitating Jesus, following Jesus are all completely appropriate and right to such we're called, but apart from a relationship with God and Jesus and apart from an awareness of the grace of God and apart from the action of that grace in one's life, all of the above can quickly devolve into a competition, just human effort to be good when in reality, as Jesus said, no one's good but God alone. And yet in an effort to think that we're on the right road, which we're inclined to do, want to do, maybe need to do, in an effort to think we're on the right road or that we're doing well or that we're excelling as disciples or people or human beings, we inevitably compare ourselves to others and we consciously or unconsciously play this game in which we seek to elevate ourselves above others, at least in our minds, which we do by evaluating others, critiquing others, judging others, and condemning others who in our minds somehow fall short, end up below us, or we just put them below us, inferior to us, failing in some way, which sadly may make us feel a little bit better about ourselves in the moment, but actually simply fosters within us what C.S. Lewis calls the great sin, pride. And yet Christians are naturally fairly proficient at this, which isn't a good thing. 
In the words of the esteemed Oswald Chambers, the average Christian is the most penetratingly critical individual. Yeah, our utmost for his highest, Oswald Chambers. The average Christian is the most penetratingly critical individual. And I know there's some truth in that, if not just sort of plain, complete truth, because that's my story. I am really good at judging. Really good. I've always been really good at judging. God made me highly analytical. I'm blaming a little bit of this on God, throwing God under the bus, passing the buck. Therefore, without even trying, I take things apart in my mind. I break them down in my head. I ask why things are and what's behind what is and how everything fits together. Moreover, there is something about the way God put me together, and again, throwing God under the bus, that wants things and people to be better and good and respectful and responsible and whole and beautiful. I want things and people to work optimally and as they could be, should be, were supposed to be, were designed to be. And when they are not, I, well, I go analytical, critical, and sometimes or often judgmental. as the people with whom I work and the people with whom I live know all too well. I've got an eye for noticing when things and people are not meeting expectations, not exceeding expectations, not being all they could be, not being where they were supposed to be, not doing what they were supposed to or ought to do. It's like there's a panel of judges inside of me and through whom I see the world and other people constantly seeing, evaluating, deciding, choosing, approving or not approving, determining the rightness or wrongness of things and people, and then trying, judging, decreeing, and condemning. Definition one, two, three. After all, somebody has to uphold the truth and goodness that voice inside of me declares. We've gotta have some standards here, people. We've gotta hold people accountable. We've gotta point people to the straight and narrow way. We can't let people get away with lax moral ethics lest everything unravel, further degrading our society's moral fiber, leading themselves and others into an abyss or even the abyss and threatening my worldview. Somebody's gotta point out other shortcomings and also maybe even their failings and call them to account or else, or else, slackers, loafers, obtuse idiots, people who can't drive, stay in their lane, Irreverent defilers, immoral idolaters, self-absorbed Epicureans, just sort of go down the list. Someone has to, someone has to name the sin and the sins of the world all around us, as did John the Baptist, right? Did a lot of that. As did the prophets before him in the Old Testament, as did Jesus at times, as did the Apostle Paul. Someone has to name that sin and speak clearly of God's holiness and God's calling to a holy life, upright, set apart. Someone has to name people's offenses against God and set those people on the straight and narrow way, lest what? Lest these people slip through God's fingers? 
lest they move beyond the reach of God's grace. Or God misses out on them somehow. I wonder, I've wondered why so many of us, like me, operate with that sort of operating system or worldview. Why are so many of us like that? Do we feel harshly judged by God and just kind of want everyone to participate in that? As if God's primary disposition toward us was critique or judgment or condemnation? God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son into the world that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him he might be saved. Huh. Did we grow up in harshly judgmental homes and so this is how we were shaped? Or have we subtly been taught by pastors, Sunday school teachers, Christian authors, Christian culture, the church, that it's our job to keep other people between the rails and when they move outside of these rails to somehow notify them subtly, consciously, unconsciously, that they're out of bounds and so maybe not up for being part of God's family or in some way not good enough for God. Such a disposition toward unclean people, toward pagans, toward unbelievers, toward immoral and irreverent people, to people who fall short, to people who don't have a lot of moral fiber, to those sorts of people. What sort of disposition is that? Such a disposition toward those people who don't fit our mold of a responsible, respectable, decent, upright, hardworking Christian is almost as common as oxygen these days in the church. Looking down at our noses at others seems almost like a hobby or a pastime or Super Bowl Sunday, a sport for some Christians. Some uh, Christians seem to think or live as if or behave as if to think that judging other people, and particularly non-Christians and supposedly lesser Christians, is one of the gifts of the Spirit. It's not. It's not in the list. Or a forgotten spiritual discipline, but it's not that either. But it's sometimes treated that way. And the world has noticed. The world has felt this. The world perceives the way many Christians and much of the church are. According to a recent study of people between the ages of 16 and 29, our future, right? In the United States, nearly 90% of respondents either described Christians as judgmental or agreed with such a statement. Nearly 90%. More specifically, the respondents described Christians as judging others personally, derogatorily, and unfairly. Further, this judgmentalism, quote, is fueled by self-righteousness and a misguided inner motivation to make one's own life look better by comparing it to the lives of others. This judgmentalism is fueled by self-righteousness. And yet Jesus says back in chapter 5, you remember, uh, talking about a righteousness or a goodness 
that he was unfolding, unpacking for them in the Sermon on the Mount that would come and all of this teaching, one thing after another, that would surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and the religious stuck-in-the-mud people of his day. A new kind of, a different kind of righteousness that was really from the heavens and of God and truly, deeply, abundantly good. And honestly, judgmentalism doesn't seem to be drawing people to the church or drawing people to God. As I look around. Apparently, feeling judged by Jesus' people doesn't cause people to flock to Jesus. Doesn't work that way, apparently. Almost surprising. And equally shocking to some Christians may be the fact that we don't have to judge others. We don't have to. We don't have to judge other people outwardly, inwardly, verbally, silently. We don't actually have to do that. And Jesus actually warned his students about doing that. It may be the most broken command or teaching of Jesus, certainly in the Sermon on the Mount if not the most ignored or overlooked. And not judging people, in other words, not doing what Jesus forbids, doesn't mean that we approve of others' choices or behaviors or lifestyles. Not judging people doesn't mean we think their choices, behaviors, lifestyles, or affirmations are consistent either with what the scriptures teach or what is best for those people in this life or the life to come, but at some level we can trust God to sort all of that out, the scriptures teach. And I know that this feels dangerous and irresponsible to some of us, but we must agree that God is bigger, greater, wiser, smarter, and more powerful than we are in every way, and that he's got all of this. We can trust God to do the judging. We can trust Jesus to do the judging. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. We say that once a month. Do we believe it? From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. Part of the Apostles' Creed isn't from thence we shall all be gathered to judge the living and the dead. And yet sometimes we live in that way. And then Jesus breaks out a little bit of comedy, right? And then Jesus sort of pulls out his comedy thing. Okay, I can tell you got a splinter in your eye. I can see that. I can see that really clearly. Let me hear. Lean over, bend over. Let me help you with that. I'll get that for you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh. The comedy of Jesus, right? Who said Jesus didn't have a sense of humor? He did. This is what we're trying to do. This is what many Christians are trying to do. This is what I try to do. Oh, let me help you get the splinter out of your I, I got. I can help you with this. And Jesus is telling jokes. Stand-up comedian, this isn't the way it works. And yet we see in Jesus here the reciprocal nature of life in the kingdom and life with him and following him that he unpacks in so many different ways and his teaching in his way. What we call the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That we get to be forgiven as we have been forgiven. And we need to think about forgiveness in that way. 
that why would we ask God to forgive when we're not willing to forgive? What sort of anything is being formed in us in that way? Be merciful as God has been merciful to you. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. There's this reciprocal nature of following Jesus that until we get that, we're just doing empty religion. But God wants us to go much deeper than that. God wants us to go much, much deeper than that. And so I want us to imagine a world and a church in which there's a whole lot less of us having to decide about whether or not another person is doing the right thing or being good, and there being more introspection of and for and about ourselves. Imagine a church that judged less and loved more. Imagine a church, a community, a life in Christ that judged less and loved more. I don't know anyone who needs more judgment in their life. I know a lot of people who need more love and kindness and acceptance and warmth and sincerity and relationship in their life. It's true that we still need to discern. There's a difference between discerning and judging. God calls us to discern, but that doesn't mean that we cease to accept people, love people. Imagine all of the energy I expend trying to decide who is good and who is bad, who is right and who is wrong. And then imagine a congregation or a community of people who simply don't judge one another, but instead encourage one another, love one another, are generous toward and with one another. The funny thing is that Christians are actually pretty good at judging, not good, proficient, at judging one another. Have you noticed that? The way Christians not only judge the world, but also judge one another? I'm a better Christian. My flavor of Christianity, my way of being a Christian is superior to yours. Jesus is absolutely calling his disciples to the mat on this one. What if we spent less time judging and more time loving? Most people get enough evaluation, critique, grading in their lives. What they don't have enough of is love. Do you, like I do sometimes, go around with 10 placards in your pocket, in your backpack, in your hands, and not overtly, but sort of internally. That was a four. That's a seven. All right, I'll give you the eight. Two. It's become a pastime, a default mechanism or way of operating for too many of us for too long. Henry Nouwen says, we spend an enormous amount of energy making up our minds about other people. 
He also goes on to say, once we can let go of our need to judge others, we will experience an immense inner freedom. Once we are free from judging, we will also be free for mercy. Wow. He says elsewhere, one of the hardest spiritual tasks is to live without prejudices. Sometimes we aren't even aware of how deeply rooted our prejudices are. We may think that we relate to people who are different from us in color, religion, sexual orientation, or lifestyle as equals, but in concrete circumstances, our spontaneous thoughts, uncensored words, and knee-jerk reactions often reveal that our prejudices are still there. Strangers, people different than we are, stir up fear, discomfort, suspicion, and even hostility. They make us lose out on our sense of security just by being other. Only when we fully claim that God loves us in an unconditional way and look at those other people as equally loved can we begin to discover that the great variety in being human is an expression of the immense richness of God's heart. Then the need to prejudge people will gradually disappear. We judge people because we haven't known or experienced the grace of God. And therefore, not only do we see it for ourselves, but we not see it and offer it to them as well. But when we understand and appreciate and appropriate the grace of God in our life, it almost naturally flows to the other as well. To such, Jesus calls us. Admittedly, there is work to be done. But, Jesus says, only by those who have thoroughly examined their own eyes, their own hearts, their own lives, and seen and acknowledged the planks in their own eyes. There is work to be done with others and for others. But only by those who have first acknowledged the planks in their own eyes and asked for God's mercy with regard to those planks and submitted themselves to the great physician who alone through the cross of Christ is able to tenderly and carefully and gently but decisively and forever remove from each of us that which blinds us and keeps us from seeing not only the grace of God in Jesus, but also see ourselves and others in light of God's grace. And now we're talking about the sort of righteousness or goodness or good life that Jesus wants for us. What does a fully devoted follower of Jesus look like? What does someone whose life is abundant in Christ look like? What is the life of someone who's well down the road with Jesus or full of God's spirit look like? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has talked about a number of things, about anger and lust and loving one's enemies. And actually, this one is on par with those. When we become a less judging or a non-judging presence, in the sense of it's our place to condemn, when we become 
or enter that space, we become more like the teacher, the rabbi we follow, and more in touch with his grace, not just for us, but for them. So to such, Jesus calls the church with this warning. Do not judge, lest you be judged in the same way. Do not judge harshly, lest you be judged in the same way. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your sister, let me help you with that speck, when all the time there's a two-by-four coming out of your eye? First, take the plank out of your own eye, Jesus said, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your sister's. Thought we'd do a little exercise in wrapping up this morning. And if you're like me, uh, you need a time of reflection and confession at this point. So I want to ask you to take a minute or two, and there's a little white card, should be, in the pew rack in front of you. And to take that card in one of those pens, and you can take the pen home with you also if you'd like. And write down ways that you've judged others harshly the types of people, the ways that you've judged others harshly, and maybe the ways that you haven't taken the plank out of your own eye but have been quick to help people with their splinters. This may be about things. It may be about people. It may be about ways of functioning. But write it down. Confess it to God and say, God, I need help with this. I'm handing this over to you, hoping that you will help me with this in your grace, that I might get a little bit closer to the abundant good life that you designed and want for your disciples and all people, where your glory shows, where your abundance flows. Help me in these ways, dear God. And then as we begin our closing song, basket up here on the table offering, if you want to physically sort of go before God, not that God's up here, but to stand up and physically make a statement and say, yes, help me with this. You can come forward and put that in those baskets. For now, let's have a moment of silence, reflection, examination, and then we'll pray. Help us to attend to the teachings of Jesus, to the way of the kingdom, to become kingdom people, to live in your kingdom now as well as forever. Holy Spirit, reform and reshape our hearts and our minds. Father, help us to bring you glory and honor. Truly, you've been good to us, far better than we deserve. Remind us of that continually. Bring us joy in and through that. And may we be vessels of both your kingdom and your mercy. Here on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.